Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning. It is Tuesday, August 18, 2020. And we've got three stories covered by two of our reporters. Two weeks after it failed to clear the market, an Arizona Industrial Development Authority unrated financing for sports facility returned, trimmed down, and featured in, in, enhanced terms to entice scarce investors. So Caitlin Devitt will talk about that. She will also talk about the state of Illinois, who is not ready to say whether it will appeal a recent court decision that revives a lawsuit seeking to void over 14 billion of the state general obligation geo bonds. So again, Kaylin Dev will talk about that second story. And the third story will be covered by Patrick Ferguson. He will discuss the Chicago Board of Education and their plans to issue bonds for the Chicago public schools in the next few months. Good morning from Chicago, Illinois. Kaylin Devitt, how are you? Good morning, how are you, young? All right. We have a double dose of Kaylin Devitt today. So let's let's get started um let me start with the basis of our podcast headline raising arizona it's about the arizona ida and Kayla, we know that yields right now are near record loads that we haven't seen in i guess decades and that investors are reacting by scrounging down the credit scale hunting for that extra yield but one recent high yield primary deal didn't get done because investors were reluctant even despite their hunger for spread. So you wrote about the deal when it failed the market a few weeks ago, and then you wrote about it again last week when it finally ended up getting done. Tell us the outline of the deal. Well, it's sort of an interesting deal brought by Ziegler, who's the sole underwriter. Um, the conduit was, as you mentioned, the Arizona um, Industrial Development Authority. The borrower is a nonprofit called Legacy Cares. And Legacy is building this massive 320-acre sports and family entertainment campus in Mesa, Arizona. The city's also kicking in some money for it. I think about $40 million for infrastructure improvements. Um, so the site's going to have like dozens of indoor and outdoor fields for soccer, basketball, baseball, volleyball, pickleball, which several people <laughs> mentioned to me, a bunch of pickles. <laughs> mentioning they thought they liked to pick up uh, pickleball and, um, and very, it's going to be gymnastics. Anyway, it's all sorts you can imagine. It's going to mm -hmm. have arenas for concerts and restaurants and bars. Wow. They're touting it as the largest, I think they're touting it. I might be getting this wrong, but the largest privately owned such facility in the country mm. and that it's going to change youth sports in Arizona forever. Mm. Wow. So the proceeds uh, are going to finance. But investors weren't really buying it when I was talking to them. You know, they were expressing some reluctance. It was part COVID. You know, um, obviously COVID's knocking down sports now, but, you know, it's sort of a question of how, what sports are going to look like when this is all over, you know, if this is all ever over. And then also I think there was – there's more kind of a higher level of skepticism in general um, after what we saw in March with the market turmoil and how the economy – has sort of, um, you know, very quickly collapsed. I think that there's more skepticism about high yield project finance deals. I mean, I think that's just um, that's just a reality. 
Right. Now, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Ziegler being the sole underwriter, what did they do? I know, I guess, numbers were changed from the initial to the latter. What did they do to get the investors to come to the table? So they originally wrote the deal on uh, 28th of July, and which is when we wrote about it. That's when it failed to clear. That was $300 million. Um, so, and I think the price on, on a key tranche at that point was about 99 with a yield of 683. So the big thing that they did when they came back was they chopped it from 300 down to 250. And so that, of course, lowered the leverage and increased um, annual debt service coverage. And they also agreed to defer all developer and, and financial advisory and other fees until the project achieves one 1.45 times annual coverage. So they agreed to um, defer all that. The borrower legacy agreed to kick in extra cash, about 2.3 million. So with the um, the deferred fees and the extra cash, that was about 16 million in additional revenue that's available to bondholders in the early years. Like I said, they cut it down 50 million, lowering the leverage. They also, of course, increased the yield. And so, and then they revamped the tranches a little bit. And and so they, you know, as one investor said, they sort of addressed the main concerns and they made the changes that they wanted. So they gave them the they gave them what they wanted, and the deal ended up pricing. So there was three, uh, one, there was three tranches. There was a, um, uh, you know, serial tax exempt that that the yield in the near term from 2024 to 2028 for like six to five up to six seven five. And then that included a 2050 bond, a term bond, which had a, a yield of 783. There was a real small taxable tranche, which um, priced with a 925 yield. And then there was a turbo redemption series um, maturing in 2080, and that had a 6.89 yield. Uh, if you don't mind, Caitlin, I, I, think, I don't think I've heard that term in a while. Turbo redemption, can you clarify that again, what that, what that means? Turbo redemption, yeah, you see that a lot in tobacco bonds. Right. Um, basically, it means all excess cash. If there's any excess cash generated, it needs to go be used to redeem those bonds, um, in essence. You know, so if you're seeing extra revenue, then those bonds could mature, could be um, retired early. So that's what that meant. So those are the – that's, that's the um, – those are the terms on which it, the deal ended up getting done last week. Oh, I see. Interesting. All right. So I got one last question for you on, on this segment. Kayla, do you think this – does this tell any, us anything about, let's say, primary high-yield deals right now in the muni market? I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of too early to say, but it was interesting. It got sent back, I think, kind of infamously over the last several years in the high-yield market. We've seen people so hungry for yield that deals get done on terms that aren't uh, protective to investors. So maybe we're going to start seeing more of this. You know, even though there's these record low yields that you talked about, they, they really pushed back against it and and they got at least more of the protections they wanted. So maybe we're going to start seeing more of that. I think it's too early to tell, but certainly this idea of, you know, there's a sense, at least in the project finance world, of, of in the high yield world, of some possible heightened amount of default or kind of doom coming down the line. And um, and in light of that, we might start to see some stronger protections for investors, but I think it's too early to tell. Yeah, just, you know, we will wait and see. All right, Kaylin, hold on, take a deep breath, get a glass of water, and we'll come back to you in a few minutes 
for your, for your other segment, okay? Okay, thanks. Okay, let's welcome Patrick Ferguson from somewhere deep in Brooklyn. How are you, Patrick? <laughs> hey, reporting live from Greenpoint, Brooklyn. How are you guys doing? <laughs> All right, we're okay. Thanks for asking. All right, Patrick, um, for DebtWire Municipal, you cover school districts, and we're going to talk about the Chicago public schools. And like many school districts around the country, Chicago public schools are they're proposing a larger budget while preparing to open schools online, and they're grappling with increased costs and safety standards. So tell us what are the main drivers of the budget increase? Right, so Chicago Public Schools is asking for a more than 9% increase uh, to its 2020-2021 budget, the, the incoming school year. Uh, the district estimates that the increase in revenue uh, will largely, largely come from the federal government as state revenue is projected to, to decline. And as you mentioned earlier, this is a trend that we've seen across the country as state budgets are taking a hit by a loss in tax revenue, largely sales tax, and other, but other taxes, hotel, uh, room occupancy taxes, uh, uh, a few sources there. Uh, they've had to cut their budgets and uh, education funding is on the chopping block. So Chicago Public Schools, you know, they're estimating they can get uh, more money or they will get more money from the federal government and especially for emergency relief fund for the, from the coronavirus. But Chicago Public Schools gets about 46% of its revenue from property taxes. And these are some of the most stable taxes, tax revenue that has not been affected that much. Property prices have not changed uh, that much uh, so far. And, uh, and so we're seeing a, a stable budget there uh, or stable revenue there. But what the Chicago Public Schools is not doing is issuing more tax anticipation notes to cover a lapse in tax collection. So Cook County, as well as counties across the country, push back, push back these property tax collections uh, to the fall. And so this translates to delayed allocations for school districts and other uh, municipal entities. Uh, so we haven't seen any uh, action related to the, the coronavirus to those delayed uh, tax revenues in terms of um, um, some debt issuance to, to cover that uh, delay. But the district says it is going to tap the bond market sometime in the fall. We don't have more details on the size of the exact date, but they do plan on a, a bond issuance uh, in the coming months. Okay, and I'm sure you'll let us know once that happens. But let me ask you, Pat, is the spending likely to increase because of COVID-19? Yeah, so districts like Chicago Public Schools, the Philadelphia School District, have planned for spending increases because of social, social distancing measures. So we look back about a month ago, uh, or even now for some, for some school districts, and they're weighing uh, what to do. Do we go all remote do we go some classes have in-person instruction and so districts you know they forecast a lot uh, for spending increases due to smaller class sizes increased spending on cleaning supplies uh, and different different costs associated with that we know from the start of the onset of the spread of the coronavirus in the u.s uh, through june the chicago public schools had spent an additional 75 million uh, um, because of the because of the coronavirus, and this is where they they weren't in school. Um, but as 
municipal analyst I was talking to noted that by pushing everything online, which Chicago Public Schools has done, districts won't have to cover these costs yet. So what they're spending money on is uh, devices for online learning. Um, some school districts, like Chicago Public Schools, have opened uh, learning centers where students can go and take online classes. So there is some cleaning costs uh, associated with that. Um, but largely moving all these classes online will save school districts, at least from spending um, money to, uh, related to having students, that, you know, as opposed to in brick and mortar schools, cleaning supplies and different, and different measures there. All right. Um, so let's finish up at one last question. Let's go back to the Chicago Public Schools. What's next for them? So the Board of Education will uh, meet on the 26th of August to vote on a proposed budget. Uh, classes are set to begin after Labor Day. Uh, one thing to note is uh, teachers unions uh, across the country have largely opposed uh, returning to school for in-person instruction uh, because of safety risks. And so we look at like the Detroit Teachers Union, uh, they've threatened to strike, uh, they've threatened to strike next week. And we've seen a lot, a lot of pushback from these teachers unions. And so while Chicago Public Schools and many, many other school districts around the country don't have a date where they're gonna return to brick and mortar uh, instruction, or it's likely we're gonna have to see some sort of agreement, some sort of approval uh, from the respective teachers union before we before we get back into class. I see. Well, it's, it's a very interesting time with schools and everything, but um, all right, Patrick, uh, thank you so much for your time. Stay safe out there. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, you too. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, let's bring it back to Kaylin. Kaylin, welcome back to the show again. Thank you. Okay, let's finish off with a story uh, in the state where you live. And I, we, this is a story that I know you've covered over the past year. I think we probably did a podcast on this way back before the pandemic started, maybe January, February, which I, I'm trying to remember for our listeners out there. But anyway, let's get to the questions. So this lawsuit in Illinois that got a lot of attention, as I mentioned last year in Muniland, has recently come back to life. And you wrote about it last week. Tell us the latest. So this is a lawsuit and that I'm sure we've talked about before. It was brought in last year, July of 2019, by a taxpayer named John Tillman. He's the head of a conservative think tank in Illinois called the Illinois Pol Policy Institute. And he was joined by a hedge fund called Warlander that owns, I think, about 25 million of GO bonds, of Illinois general obligation bonds. And so the lawsuit seeks to void about 15 billion of Illinois GO bonds. These were this is debt that was issued in 2003 and 2017. They're arguing that they're unconstitutional. They violate a provision in the state constitution that requires all debt uh, to be used for a specific purpose. These particular bonds were used um, as for pension to cover pension contributions and also to cover general fund shortfalls. So that's why Tillman says that they violate the constitution because those are general purpose, those were not specific enough. So in Illinois, a lawsuit needs to win initial kind of court approval, summary approval from the court to go forward. So last year there was a circuit court in Sangamon County that heard that, heard the motion to leave the lawsuit. And um, so the state argued several things, you know, pushing back against it. 
arguing that I'm arguing that the bond authorization and the debt service appropriation rest entirely with lawmakers and not the courts and blah blah blah. They argue lots of things. They were also joined. It was, in, it was interesting. They were joined as um, friends in the court by Nuveen and Alliance Bernstein. Both are big Illinois geo bondholders, and they argued. Uh, this is a sexy little feature of it. That they argue that that it should be thrown out because Warlander will profit because they actually hold credit default swaps. Right. Essentially, act as a short on the state's geo bonds. So, in any case, almost a year ago this week, I think it was the end of August in 2019, the judge sided with the state and said the lawsuit couldn't go forward. And Tillman appealed, this time without Warlander. And then on August 6th, just a couple of weeks ago, the appellate court ruled in favor of Tillman. And they said that the lawsuit was not petty or malicious, which are the standards, you know, or uh, frivolous or malicious, which are the standards by which a lawsuit can, can or cannot go forward. And um, so it's, it, so they revived it. Uh, they did the ruling, you know, very explicitly said we're not engaging with the merits. We're not engaging with what the trial judge said. We're just ruling that it can go forward because it's not frivolous or malicious. So, now, I'm very curious how the market reacted, but before um, I asked that question, you said now Warlander is no longer part of the suit. Is that correct? Yes. You know, I think that the judge, I attended that hearing last year in Springfield, and the judge really called out Warlander and repeatedly questioned him on the point that uh, Nuveen and Alliance Bernstein had brought forward. The, the state had just argued that Warlander doesn't have standing, but I think that idea that they could actually profit from it and that they hold those shorts against the state really caught the judge's attention. So maybe it's for that reason, maybe for another reason, but they were their, their name was formally dropped from the appeal. Mm, interesting. So let's talk about the market reaction overall since now that the suit's going forward. Well, I mean, there really wasn't much of a market reaction, I have to say. <laughs> I, I <laughs> It didn't really move the market that much. Um, I mean, Moody's came out and said they warned it's a credit negative for the state. Uh, they, they were, they made this big deal. They, they said, you know, we really don't think that Tillman will ultimately prevail mm -hmm. that, that if it continues to go forward, that the courts will rule in the state's favor. However, they said even the existence of this lawsuit is a negative for the state because of right. the state's financial flexibility. And it, and in particular, it's restricting its financial flexibility at a time when, you know, COVID is really pressuring our bottom line in Illinois revenues as they are everywhere. Um, but as our listeners probably know, Illinois is, you know, kind of facing its own idiosyncratic pressures and challenges. So Moody's came out and said that, but we really didn't see much reaction, at least judging just kind of from the spreads. So I checked late yesterday, the spreads on the state's um, 10-year geo was at 213 Mm -hmm. over the MMD AAA. So that's tighter from August 7th, the day after the appellate court opinion came out, the spread was at 226. So it's tightened a little bit. Um, so we didn't see it really a market move from that opinion coming out. And just, so just looking at last August, before the rule, the spread was at about 175 basis points. And then it was at about 155 early September. You know, a lot of that's just kind of bigger market dynamics, not necessarily this lawsuit that's moving stuff around. But, uh, you know, we might see some other, we might see some reaction. I think as this go, goes forward, 
we might start to see a little bit more investor reaction. I think a lot of people expected it to kind of linger for a while, at least in the appellate process and, and after that. So bondholders and investors were expecting it to linger and possibly um, pressure the bonds a little bit, but I don't think that anybody was really shocked or surprised when it was revived last week. Right. All right, Kayla, I got one last question for you. So well, tell us what's next in terms of the legal process or anything else you could tell us about the story going forward. So this, the state last week wasn't ready to say whether or not they're, you know, going to appeal, how they're going to react to the appeal. Um, they have about 42 days, well, 42 days last week, so a little under that to decide whether they want to petition for a rehearing, which is one option. They could petition for a rehearing before the appellate court. And they also have about 60 days to file leave to appeal before the Illinois Supreme Court, which is a real option. They might just try to do that, go straight to the Supreme Court to have it decided more quickly. So those are some of the options. If neither of those things happen, the matter is just going to go back to the trial court. All right. Well, that sounds interesting. Kaylin, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, stay safe out there. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you. You too. Bye. And that's our show for today. Many thanks to our guests, Kaylin Devin in Chicago for two stories, Patrick Ferguson in Brooklyn, New York with one story, and Christian Ayala, our producer, for wrapping us all together in a nice audio fashion. But many thanks to you, our listeners out there, who tune in week after week, pandemic or not, to the Muni Lowdown, a weekly recap of the latest in the distressed Muni bond market. Hopefully, we'll catch you again next week on the Muni Lowdown. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.